Uh, good afternoon and welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Mark Calabria, our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at the Cato Institute, and I'm also very honored to serve as the moderator at today's event. Uh, one cannot long study the history of monetary policy in the United States without at some point coming across the writings of Lewis Lehrman, whether it's his occasional op-eds in the Wall Street Journal or his numerous books. Lou has a uniquely both accessible and insightful style when discussing monetary policy. Uh, it was for this reason, among others, that Lou was chosen in 1982 to serve on the U.S. Gold Commission, where he co-authored with Ron Paul the Minority Report, The Case for Gold, which I will note you can download a free copy of from Cato.org. Uh, debates over monetary policy in America, to the extent that they even take place, are generally dominated by Keynesians and monetarists. Lou's work has been instrumental in adding a more Austrian voice to these debates. The central flaw in these debates, in my opinion, is that both Keynesians and monetarists generally take the desirability of a government central bank for granted. The argument is really just over how you run it. Lou's work has repeatedly reminded us of the importance of choice and competition in the realm of money. After all, choice and competition are the hallmarks of a free society as are trust and honesty, elements that, in my opinion, are far more important to the nature of money than is something simple like price stability. We are also very fortunate today to have a former Cato Institute alum, Addison Wigan, here to both introduce Lou and to offer commentary on his book. And I guess I should make sure we all know that there are copies here. Lou will be around afterwards to sign copies for the very low price of $5, which is a very big discount off of the uh, list price. Uh, Addison, again, who will uh, introduce Luke momentarily, is currently executive publisher of Agora Financial, based in Baltimore, and he's also president of Lazy Fair Books, which I know, uh, I feel like you should probably give me a little bit of money back, given how much I've spent on Lazy Fair Books over the years. Um, before I turn it over to... <laughs> Before I turn it over to Addison, I also want to offer uh, my apologies for having to slip out a little bit near the end of the panel, as I will be rushing over to Capitol Hill to testify before the House Financial Services Committee on why we need to end Fannie and Freddie, which might be the second biggest plagues after the Federal Reserve. With that, let me turn it over to Addison. Mark? Um, it's a great honor, actually, to be here today for a couple of reasons. Um, one of them is I, uh, 10 years ago, or a little bit more than 10 years ago, I worked here at Cato myself, and I helped to sponsor forums just like this. So it's, uh, it's great to be back, and it's also uh, it's a, it's a comforting thought that Cato is, uh, has continued the work. I've gone on to a fairly illustrious career in publishing, and, uh, and the troops here at Cato have continued the, the good work of bringing forth uh, books like... Uh, the book we're here to talk about today. The second great honor is just uh, it just the opportunity to have uh, to work with Lewis Lehrman. Um, we have become friends over the last several weeks uh, or several months um, after meeting at the Stable Do Dollar Conference at the Heritage Foundation a couple years ago. Um, I've had the opportunity to uh, visit uh, Lewis at his home. He you know, was gracious enough to, to, to allow a film crew to come into his library and uh, do a, a lengthy interview. Um, we're very interested in the, the book that's coming out now, and I'll explain why in a moment, um, but it will help if I explain a little bit about what Agora Financial is. Agora Financial is a retail publisher. We publish investment advice for individual investors, people who are trying to manage their own money. 
And to illustrate what that's like, um, for our own purposes, for training, for uh, helping writers learn how to communicate with our audience, uh, we went into our reader database and we found a typical reader of our, uh, of our publications and we gave him a name. His name's Bob and he's an actual uh, character or reader who came into our files. He's a 58-year-old dentist. Uh, he has a valuable skill for most of us. I want, I want to keep my teeth. <laughs> Uh, as long as I can. So I visit my dentist. Um, he went to medical school, obviously, uh, very expensive to become a dentist. Um, and then uh, as he entered into his practice, he had to become an entrepreneur. He had to figure out how to run a small practice. Um, he spent most of his adult life thinking about dentistry and running a business. He hasn't spent a lot of time uh, examining how the monetary system works or uh, how the financial markets work, or what goes on when when he's uh, getting the nightly news about the Dow and uh, GDP numbers and things like that. Uh, the first thing um, Bob did when he realized that he had enough money in his retirement savings account to worry about it is he gave it to Wall Street. And uh, I made this comment on Friday night at a venue in in uh, New York City, and it didn't go over very well, but I think I'm safe here. The first thing that happened after he gave his money to Wall Street was he started losing it through bad decisions and through uh, high fees that he didn't understand. A lot of trading going on. Uh, but Bob's smart enough and sophisticated enough to know that um, he can figure it out. He can do the work on his own, figure out how the markets work, invest successfully on his own, but he needs some help. So he goes online, he finds Agora Financial, and that's, that's our core market. One of the first lessons that we try to teach uh, individuals who are sophisticated enough to understand it, uh, when managing their own money, they have to understand that the dollar itself is uh, what is under a planned obsolescence, uh, like what, what we used to complain about American car manufacturers. There is a strategy in place to have the, the dollar erode in value by 2% a year. And if you listen to speeches given by the, the, uh, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, currently uh, Mr. Ben Bernanke, um, they'll tell you that's what their goal is. And if, if they can't get there, if there's a little bit of deflation in the market, they want to spend more or print more money to, uh, to achieve that target. Um, Bob's reaction at first is uh, incredulous. He can't believe that, that that strategy is in place. And they turn on us. They don't believe that the bank could actually have that strategy in place. Uh, the second thing that Bob does is he starts to panic and he starts speculating in, uh, in the stock market. <laughs> um, we have products that help, help him do that too, but we try to educate Bob and his, his friends that um, there is a, a madness about the monetary world that uh, is working against him. And the dollar or the $100 that he saves today in 20 years time will be worth 40 cents. And what does that mean? It means that what costs $100 today of the money that he saved will cost $400, $500 uh, in, in that much time. Another response that we often get is that, well, the dollar must be doing well because 
uh, it's rising against the euro or it's rising against uh, the yen uh, because that, that's in the headlines. If the dollar moves moves up, then uh, then Bob feels better about the economy. Uh, but but the planned obsolescence is still baked in. Um, one of my favorite lines from a movie that we produced a couple years ago called IOUSA was uttered by the Comptroller General, then Comptroller General of the country, uh, David Walker. Just because you're the nicest looking horse in the glue factory doesn't mean you want to be in the glue factory. Um, he was talking about the dollar uh, being a part of this race to the bottom that all fiat currencies are a part of. Um, that's, that's why I'm here today, because I think it's very important for this debate, this policy debate, to be played out um, in public. As, uh, as Mark alluded to, most of the debate is, is hijacked by Keynesians and monetarists, and it's very difficult for an alternative uh, point of view to, to get out there. So we've got, we're on C-SPAN today, we've got the forum. Um, through our own publications, we've been uh, publishing a lot of Lou's works, comments, talking about the interview that we've done. We'll be issuing the, uh, uh, releasing the, the interview that we've done on our own websites and uh, giving a, uh, a copy of The True Gold Standard, which is another book that, that Lewis has written, uh, to members of the Lazy Fair Book Club, which are people that have come into our, uh, into our reader lists and joined, uh, joined an ec uh, ec uh, excuse me, an economic club essentially to learn how the economy works and how the financial markets work so they can manage their own money. Um, when we were when we when we were talking at your house, Lewis, you uh, you made a very important uh, observation. It was off camera, so we don't we haven't actually published it. But you you mentioned that you were sort of lamenting that the the rise of the internet, the influence of the internet, because um, in in much of our own work and in the, the work of journalists around the world, it's very easy to look stuff up online and use that as your source material. It's much more difficult to go back beyond 1995 and uh, look for uh, arguments, in this case, about monetary policy, because you have to go to the library and use microfiche. Um, and that's a little bit more arduous than just keying things into Google. Uh, Lewis mentioned that he had, uh, had run across that and founded goldstandardnow.org, which is edited by Mr. Ralph Banco, sitting there in the front row, uh, in order to d dig up some of the pieces uh, of the, the monetary debate that was being waged in the op-ed pages between in the late 70s and the early 80s, pieces that otherwise you would uh, not be able to find online. They're now housed at thegoldstandard.org, and there is a, a conscious effort to reignite uh, the public debate. Uh, Ralph was writing in Forbes uh, not too long ago, rebutting a comment made by the economist, the New York, uh, New York University economist, Nouriel Rubini, that the argument for sound money through a classical gold standard was the province of nut jobs on the right, right wing, the fringe of the right wing, I believe, is the actual term that he used. And uh, Ralph did a very eloquent job of defending the public debate, the very centrist and uh, important
job of arguing for a classical gold standard, uh, not from a fringe, lunatic fringe, or from the, the side, uh, one element or another of the, the uh, political spectrum, but to actually advocate uh, a monetary system where Bob can save a dollar today and know that it's worth that dollar in purchasing power 40 years from now. And uh, I'm not exactly the most eloquent speaker on the, on the subject, but I think we do have in Lewis Lehrman probably the most eloquent speaker uh, advocating for the classical gold standard. So with that, I'll allow him to discuss the contents of his book, and then we'll open it up for questions and discussion. So I want to thank you, Addison. Uh, congratulations for your just remarkable success with Agora, Essay Fair Books, even documentaries which win prizes in places like France. And Mark, I know the work you do here at uh, Cato. It's outstanding work. It's the center of, one might say, the regulation center, but it's really the center of deregulation. I also want to thank you for inviting me uh, to Cato today. Um, there are many distinguished guests here today, and my dear friends, too. So I begin by declaring this a period, an era unparalleled of financial disorder. Indeed, the modern age of central banking, now in its fourth century, may be characterized by the rise and fall of real money. To historians, every decade is said to be preoccupied by specific issues. For example, from 2008 to 2013, international economic issues focused on quantitative easing and the fluctuating purchasing power of the dollar. But the focus turns now from the fall to the rise of the dollar exchange rate and the consequence of its instability. On domestic issues, government economists, the academics, and the talking heads of bubble vision are today focused on what they are pleased to call modest price inflation. Let it be said, however, that financial market participants know that instead of Federal Reserve quantitative easing not being expressed in the CPI, it is expressed in the successive price rises of speculative hedges such as commodities, foreign exchange, equities, bonds, farmland, real estate, and art, among other vehicles. These are the vehicles used by the so-called carry trades of the speculative and financial class, empowered as they are by near zero interest rates. The financial class gets the cheap Fed credit first, enabled thereby to front run the Fed's massive securities purchases. And then with the proceeds of new sales, they profitably arbitrage the prices of related assets and securities. In fact, 
Excess cash balances created by quantitative easing were reabsorbed during the past five years by the rising asset prices of the rich and by the export of excess dollars abroad through their overall U.S. balance of payments deficits. These deficit payments themselves being partially financed by rising prices until a short while ago, the emerging market prices began to rise. Commodity prices again, foreign exchange rates, and economic growth in the emerging markets themselves. At the moment, some of these trends are in reverse, making for reciprocal dangers. A word about the CPI. Savvy statisticians have impeached the U.S. government methodology to, to compute the consumer price index. For example, using the methodology of CPI computation in 1980, CPI inflation would have been close to 10 percent. Using the government methodolo methodology of 1990, CPI inflation would have been closer to 6 percent. Whatever and wherever the inflation, workers earning fixed salaries and wages and those living on pensions and fixed incomes know that their paychecks and their minuscule income from savings do not keep up with their expenses, which must be paid for at rising true market prices. And working people have also discovered that the creditworthy liquid financial class with access to cheap money at the Fed and at the banks has enriched itself not only by bailout subsidies, but by cheap financing derived from its symbiotic dependence on the Federal Reserve System. This a fundamental cause of the rising inequality of wealth in America. But it is also true that fears of deflation persist in the world of commodities, equities, emerging countries, and at the central banks. They haunt the Fed and the financial markets, not least because foreign economies try to adjust to the unpredictable and disorderly fall, and now the rise of the dollar on the foreign exchanges. Indeed, manipulated floating exchange rates engage all the demonic forces of latent mercantilism and foreign exchange controls, the combination of which has the power to destroy the international trading system, as in fact it did during the interwar period from 1920 to 1940. So, let me touch briefly on only a few of these subjects, others during our discussion. In the full light of history, the past century has been preeminently the era of financial disorder, an era inaugurated by World War I, a catastrophic and suicidal act of the West entailing the self-immolation of the European great powers. It destroyed not only much of European civilization and the flower of its manhood, but it also destroyed the monetary system associated with its unprecedented growth and prosperity, namely the classical gold standard. World War II and its aftermath were the next acts of this unfolding tragedy, as all European countries struggled with inflationary disorders during the war-torn 1940s and the reconstruction efforts of the 1950s. The experts call this period, this early post-war period, 
the permanent, I quote them, the permanent scarcity of the dollar. Remember that the US economy in 1945 dominated the planet as no country of history, accounting for about 50% of world output and about 75%, perhaps as much as 80% of global gold reserves. For 15 years, from 1945 to 1960, the gold-linked dollar of the post-war Bretton Woods system remained a reasonably stable epicenter around which other fluctuating currency systems orbited quite unsteadily. It should be emphasized that the Bretton Woods gold exchange system was a reserve currency system based on the hegemonic dollar. It had been erected upon the rickety foundation of the post-World War I reserve currency system designed at Genoa in 1922. The Genoa system itself, Jerry built upon the official reserve currency role, primarily of sterling, but also of the dollar. Both currencies being official substitutes for pre-war settlements in gold of residual balance of payments deficits. Now, it was from 1945 to 1958 that the reasonably stable Bretton Woods dollar did dominate global trade and exchange as the world struggled to recover from World War II. But after 1958, a momentous monetary event took place. Western European governments restored the mutual convertibility of their currency systems on current account, sponsored by the European Payments Union, abolished most exchange controls, and sought to establish budgetary equilibrium at home. Promptly, dollar primacy began to wane. From that very year, 1958, when the once prostrate nations of Europe hardened the convertibility of their national monies, the European nations accelerated their post-war rise in world markets. And then, and then, it was the United States which began to experience near permanent overall balance of payments deficits and budget deficits. Now, throughout the 1960s, under Presidents Kennedy and Johnson, inflation and the external deficit of the dollar generated by expansive U.S. monetary policies and budget deficits led to perennial, perennial foreign exchange crises and ultimately to foreign exchange controls. Foreign exchange controls in the United States. The Bretton Woods system groaned under the flood weight of excess U.S. dollars going abroad, where perforce, they were accumulated in the official foreign exchange reserves of our trading partners. This was the period, maybe some of you remember, when the Washington policymakers and economists led by academic neo-Keynesians, Paul Samuelson and Walter Heller, suggested that a little inflation induced by managed currency, say two or three percent, was controllable and desirable. At the end of the 1970s, inflation had reached the annualized rate of 15%. Now, since the US dollar was the primary reserve currency under the Bretton Woods Treaty, foreign central banks were, in effect, required to purchase the undesired dollars in their banking systems against the creation of their own domestic money. 
Foreign central banks held these dollars as official reserves. They didn't bury them in vaults. They promptly reinvested these dollars in the New York money market, thus enabling Americans to buy again with the original cash balances used before to buy the goods abroad. In a word, this duplication of purchasing power under the reserve currency system of Bretton Woods, unassociated with the production of new output, caused aggregate demand to exceed aggregate supply. Inflation must be the ultimate result. This, in a word, is what my colleague John Mueller and I call the reserve currency curse. It was also during this period, 1967, that an international paper money, special drawing rights, SDRs, was invented by the International Monetary Fund in order, it was argued, to avoid a potential liquidity shortage. Indeed, it was even said that the SDR, an artificially fabricated reserve asset to be allocated among its members by the International Monetary Fund, was the necessary liquidity to finance growing world trade. But as one foreign economist remarked, given the inflation and the world money glut caused by US deficits, the creation of SDRs amounted to irrigation plans during a flood. So from 1965, the Federal Reserve had been required by a reform statute to hold gold reserves equal to 25% of Federal Reserve notes and deposits, the so-called monetary base. Now, when President Lyndon Johnson decided simultaneously to expand the Vietnam War and to build the Great Society welfare system, he moved to void the statutes, which by virtue of the stipulated gold cover, limited the amount of money and credit which the Federal Reserve System could create. The full inflationary potential inherent in the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 and in the monopoly central bank it had created was about to be realized. And predictably, as the legally required gold cover was gradually brushed aside, budget deficits, credit expansion, inflation, and the balance of payments crises intensified. Now, what a few far-seeing statesmen had actually predicted as early as 1960 seemed almost inevitable in 1968, namely the collapse of the Bretton Woods system. From 1960 to 61, the London gold pool, originated by the developed countries, led by the United States, had underwritten the Bretton Woods convertibility agreements. But the gold pool had grown increasingly shaky because of excessive central bank quantitative easing. By selling gold at the stipulated gold dollar parity of $35 per ounce in order to redeem excess dollars accumulating abroad, the Anglo-American powers had been able to finance their extravagant welfare systems at home and their extravagant foreign policies abroad. But after March 1968, the United States refused to supply gold for dollars to the London Gold Pool, arbitrarily refused. The presumed linchpin of the Bretton Woods system, the fragile external link between gold and the dollar, had been ruptured, if not definitively broken. 
These dramatic changes in the international monetary system before and after 1971 were, in fact, welcomed by most of the academic and poly policymaking communities and the politicians. The Bretton Woods Agreement was, as they said, an unnecessary discipline. Professional economists, neo-Keynesians, and monetarists alike gladly dismissed Bretton Woods fixed exchange rate regimes, not because, like the interwar monetary regime, it was a flawed, profoundly flawed reserve currency system, as it surely was, but because it was the last vestige of monetary restraint still remaining from the pre-World War I classical gold standard. The academic economists now proclaimed the coming of a new era of central bank managed money and, of course, floating exchange rates to be managed just as well by economists at the Fed and other central banks and the economists at international monetary institutions. So it was that from 1945 to 1965, the neo-Keynesians had ruled economic policymaking in Washington and in other developed countries and in other impoverished, underdeveloped countries like India. Then came the counter-revolution of the monetarists who captured much of the field of economic policy and some university departments in the late 1960s and 1970s. From them, one learned that money matters as much or more than fiscal policy. And in particular, one learned from the monetarists that governments could manage inconvertible paper currencies according to certain prescribed monetary manipulations, even by a computer, as the leading monetarist Milton Friedman suggested. Their favorite techniques for manipulating the money supply was the very same open market operations of the neo-Keynesians, that is, the daily intervention in the bond and money markets to buy and sell billions of dollars worth, and later trillions, of government debt securities in order to manipulate the supply of credit and money and to influence the level of interest rates. Simply stated, monetarists promoted growth of inconvertible paper and credit money by means of a steady increase in the money supply, or if you will, the monetary base. Say, 3% money growth per annum. Engineered, of course, by the all-seeing Fed. It was supposed by the academics that the Fed had the tools, the all-seeing computer, and the unique personal foresight to attain these goals. However, the monetarists and the neo-Keynesians of the 60s did agree on one major reform issue though not upon the reform of the tottering Bretton Woods reserve currency system, but instead they advocated together the demolition of the very tenuous Bretton Woods gold link with the dollar. In its place, monetarists and neo-Keynesians alike endorsed central bank managed currencies, floating exchange rates, clean for some, dirty for others, and the permanent demonetization of gold. Simply put, they wanted an end to any international exchange rate regime based on the discipline of real money or convertible currencies. May I digress just for a moment? I remember a debate at that time. It was around 1969, 1970, um, a debate of some very distinguished features, figures, including Milton Friedman, 
the chairman of the uh, banking committee, Henry Royce, was there, and he had the floor last, and he proclaimed from the floor that he was absolutely certain he was willing to bet that when gold were demonetized, its price would decline to $6 per ounce. In 1980, when gold reached $850, I couldn't help but wonder whether Mr. Royce had covered his short. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a memory uh, of yesterday. Now it was that central bankers, armed with the power to manipulate nominal, inconvertible currencies, could presume to become de facto central planners. To attain this goal, the historic institution of a real monetary standard, the gyroscope of the civilized world economy for centuries, must be destroyed. A nominal, inconvertible monetary token, devoid of real substance, had become the fashionable zero-cost monetary standard of the Fed, the academic economists, and policymakers everywhere. And so it is today. In the meantime, under President Nixon, European governments had become increasingly impatient to exchange their excess dollars for what remained of U.S. gold reserves. Nixon responded by defaulting at the gold window on August 15, 19. 71, my 33rd birthday, the president abolished by executive order the last vestige of dollar convertibility to gold. The tattered remnant of the gold standard had been destroyed by the undisputed leader of the free world. The rise and fall of real money, it seemed, was now a finished chapter of history. Gold would thenceforth be primarily a fluctuating commodity, though even today, monetary authorities do hold about one billion ounces of gold. And also, contrary to conventional opinion at that time, the dollar would continue as the world reserve currency to this very day, the world dollar standard. But now, the dollar is a nominal paper and deposit money, a legal token linked primarily to the judgment and manipulations of its issuers and regulators at the Federal Reserve System. Quantitative control of money has supplanted the market. May I sum up too briefly a few indisputable long-term economic consequences which followed. But let us, like a businessman, take a quick look at the economic world bottoms up, not top-down, like the macroeconomists. Since the end of convertibility in 1971, average real wages per hour of work in the United States have been stagnant. Average annual American economic growth since 2000 has been about half the average annual real growth of the previous two American centuries. The real purchasing power of a 1971 dollar saved in the bank, adjusted by the CPI, has declined to a value of about 15 cents. That is to say, the price level has risen from 1971 to 2013 by about sixfold, a rise unparalleled 
in the history of the American Republic. In a word, the American middle class, relatively speaking, has been gradually dispossessed. The consequences of the collapse of real money worldwide are still unfolding. But let it be truly said that only one century of post-World War I financial disorder has been written. And now, the question is, what is to be done? So let us move forward to our discussion and let us inquire together into what is to be done. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Lou. Every time I, I hear Lou talk or read his work, I really feel like I just get an amazing whirlwind tour of history. Uh, and quite frankly, I can think of no place in America that needs a history lesson better than Washington. We seem to repeatedly make the same mistakes uh, over and over again. I also want to note as an aside, Cato recently came out with a, a paper from uh, my good friend George Selgin on the history of the gold standard in the United States, which is also available free at Cato.org. So I certainly uh, would encourage you to take a look at that. We're going to start taking some questions, and I will first ask that uh, you actually have a question rather than a, a statement or a speech. Uh, and if you could also give your identification, and please wait for the microphone to come to you so that we can pick it up uh, on the speaker system. Thank you. First question. Uh, no, I'm tempted, Bert, not to let you have the first question, but, but keeping with tradition, we will let the first question go to Bert. <laughs> Uh, thank you, Mark. Uh, Bert Ely, a banking and monetary policy consultant here in town. Uh, Mr. Lerman, thank you very much uh, for being here today and for offering your book at, uh, uh, at the uh, very reasonable price of, of $5. Um, I have a, a question for you, and this is jumping to the end of the book in your coda on page 245 when you talk about the five steps to get from, from, from here to there. And, uh, uh, you know, essentially, as, as I understand it, you're uh, calling for a central role for the federal government in reestablishing uh, a gold standard in terms of a fixed convertibility of gold to uh, the dollar. Uh, that concerns me because uh, that implies a, a role for the, uh, the federal government, and I suspect I'm not the only one in this room who is highly skeptical of uh, anything the federal government gets involved in. My question is this. Can you envision the creation and the sustainability of a gold standard that doesn't require the involvement of a national government? So, excellent question, Bert. Mm. The answer to the latter part of your question is yes, indeed, I can uh, envision and think I can describe, and I think others can describe, a workable, effective, long-lasting gold standard that does not necessarily involve federal government management. Um, it's laid out really in the propositions of establishing the gold standard as the standard uh, in the United States and allowing free banking and nations all over the world to elect to follow the United States' lead. On the first part of your question, uh, there is an inevitable involvement in America of the federal government. We live in a country uh, where not all things are permitted. There is a Constitution of the United States. And in Articles 1, Sections 8 and 10, 
uh, it is made clear in the first place that Congress has the sole power to coin money and regulate the value thereof. In a word, Congress, under the Constitution, is given the authority to establish and define the dollar, whether it be a weight of gold, a weight of silver, um, not the Federal Reserve System. The Federal Reserve System is a mere agency, like the Federal Communications Commission or the old Interstate um, Commerce Commission. Uh, it's a mere agency of the federal government. So there is an indispensable minimum, if not more on a prudential basis, involvement of the United States government initially by Congress having the power, the sole power, to define the gold weight of the dollar were the gold standard to be uh, reestablished. That is where the initiative, I believe, will come from. And um, it is certainly not without recognition in Washington that there is a move for a centenary monetary co commission, not unlike that which was established after the banking panic of 1907, to uh, create a commission uh, at the very highest level among those senior uh, um, officials of, of the government and private citizens to examine just as the um, as the Aldrich Vreeland uh, Commission did in 1908 through 1912 the causes of the instability of the dollar, the causes of the panics and failed enterprises of the Federal Reserve System since the inauguration of the Federal Reserve Act. So the as Mr. Churchill said about uh, Britain during the Great Battle of Britain, the situation is hopeless but not serious. <laughs> we can move on to uh, the next question over here. Thank you, Warren Coates. Uh, Mr. Lehrman, you have done an excellent job, as have many others, of arguing that the fiat currency standard needs to be replaced with a hard anchor. Uh, could you elaborate what appears to be your preference for gold or any other single commodity which is bound to be less stable in value than, say, a basket? on the basket of commodities or basket of currencies or any kind of straw-based monetary standard. Uh, I think it is sufficient for me to say that it would be as in, unstable as the fluctuating currencies themselves or the fluctuating commodities themselves. And, and there would be no reason to believe that the monetary standard would be stable based upon a fluctuating basket of articles of wealth drawn from the market, the prices of which must fluctuate uh, based upon supply and demand, cost of production, and, and those variations which have characterized uh, both commodities and fluctuating foreign exchange rates untied to a, a gold standard uh, as, as in the past. So I conclude uh, that mm, almost anything is possible if we rely on academics in classrooms uh, to design a perfect monetary system, um, in the end, um, um, whiteboards or blackboards at the University of Chicago or Harvard <laughs> University or even Cambridge uh, will not do. Uh, 
the t testimony of history, I think, uh, uh, reveals a sufficiently conclusive answer on that. What we need to do is look at the historical evidence of the modern world trading system. Let us call that a period of 300 years. And we need to look at what was the least imperfect monetary standard by which nations, families, uh, and groups of nations grew at rates of growth unparalleled in the whole history of homo sapiens, if you want to put it that way. And th the facts are that imperfect people with imperfect institutions can only choose the least imperfect institution which will give them the stability of purchasing power of their wages and salaries over the long run. And it was the decision of um, the, uh, the British in 1770 to establish a bimetallic system of, uh, whereby the British pound was defined as a fixed weight of gold and silver ultimately as a result of um, a certain transition, a pure uh, gold standard, to which, in a network effect, not unlike a Microsoft operating system, more nations emulated the British system and joined themselves to the gold standard, including the United States, Germany, France, and all the great powers of Europe. If you look at the price level fluctuations between, let us say, 1717 and the work of Isaac Newton, and um, the uh, year before World War I, or even up until the 1930s, you will find that the variation in the price level over the long run was virtually zero. That is to say, the purchasing power of the pound over a period of a couple of hundred years, choosing a standard assortment of basic goods from the market, um, was the same purchasing power based upon the wages and salaries of each particular a set of facts and circumstances. So that while not perfect, because there were variations on a decennial basis or even on an annual basis, they were very modest. For example, the so-called deflations of the gold standard were about 1.2% per annum. Despite the unbelievable exaggeration that one hears from academics who wish to criticize the gold standard. Inflations under the gold standard themselves, that is to say when gold output was rising and giving rise to an expansion of the money supply, and not only that, but an expansion of uh, growth, which continued both during the deflations and the uh, so-called inflation. The, what was described as inflation was about a one to one and a half, sometimes a 2% rate of gain in the price level during periods of augmentation. But for the full period under the gold standard, if you take, for example, 1879 to 1914, a period which encompasses both a deflationary moment of decline in the price level of about 1% a year to a period just before World War I of a rise of the price level at about 2% per year. From 1879 to, 19, uh, to 1913, if you put it on a graph, you will see that the purchasing power of the uh, gold standard, whether it was the gold dollar or the gold pound, was virtually without movement, some fluctuation in between, as I mentioned, but from point to point over the long run, people who saved their wages and their salaries, who were not speculators on Wall Street or Lombard Street in London, who had no access to uh, special arrangements, they could count on the purchasing power of their dollar after 
their entire lifespan and kind of expired. It's going to respond, Lou, but we have very powerful computers now. Can't we do all this? Yes, yes. Uh, I, I can't be the only one that when I hear the monetarist uh, conversation about where computers, I, I think back to the socialist calculation debates, and it's the, the same thing repeatedly. I think there's actually a book there to be written, all of the things that government could only do if we just had more powerful computers. Yeah. Uh, and we never seem to learn. Uh, I'm going to take one last question and hand it over to Addison, uh, who will take a few more questions for about 10 more minutes, and a uh, young lady in the middle. Um, my name is Lindsay McBride, and I work for the Charles Koch Institute. Um, unfortunately, I haven't had the pleasure of reading your book, and I'm fairly new to the issue of monetary um, economics and monetary policy, but I had a question. I was doing some research into my home state of Utah, and recently after they passed the Utah Legal Tender Act, there was an association called the Utah Precious Metals Association that formed, which under, in my understanding, it's a place that stores gold and then issues um, almost like credit cards or debit cards that allows people to buy and sell in gold. And I was wondering what your thoughts are. It seems like um, the gold is acting as a competitive currency in that sense to the dollar. On um, What your thoughts are on that and is if it could be an alternative to the gold standard or a transition to the gold standard. Well, for a young lady who has come anew to this issue, you certainly get the picture. Um, there are people in this room who had something to do with the um, adoption uh, in Utah of uh, the legal tender arrangements, which um, under Article Section uh, Article uh, Eight, Section Ten of the Constitution, are permissive of the states establishing nothing but gold and silver t um, as a legal tender, therefore permissive of doing so. And it is intended to um, create a competitive currency, and the institutional arrangements to make it effective in Utah and elsewhere are being worked on assiduously by uh, lots of very smart people. There are two things I, I would wish to say about that, because um, uh, there's so much written well about it, in, indeed, on the internet. Um, one is that the effort to get the states themselves, and I believe there are efforts, I think Jeff can tell us, Ralph can tell us, uh, how many, I think there are about 15 states where there's, there's an active effort to replicate the Utah, the Utah um, bill, uh, which is aimed at making mm, gold and silver uh, a legal uh, tender and competitive with, uh, a, a competitive currency with Federal Reserve notes. Mm. And that is an effort to teach very busy people who work all day long, take care of their families, try to save a couple of bucks, send their kids to decent schools, and teach them at home when they find they're inadequate. This is an, uh, this is an effort to, to um, teach American people from the ground up the characteristics of a monetary system which will pres preserve uh, the purchasing power of their wages and their salaries, and especially those uh, who retire on fixed incomes and pensions, which happens a lot faster than a young lady like you might think. So, mm, uh, uh, so you, one should not omit the didactic purpose involved in this. Uh, it's not the most important, but it is, it's central. Um, a great president of ours once said that public sentiment is everything. If you can convince the public persuade the public, 
that um, a, an, a policy is necessary, legislators will follow. So the Utah work and the work in other states um, is uh, part of the building of a public sentiment behind the reform of the um, inconvertible paper dollar manipulated by the Federal Reserve System, uh, building a, a constituency behind its, uh, its uh, uh, reform. The second uh, f uh, important fact is that one of the things about um, a standard money, it's like standards in telecommunications or standards in computers. Uh, once the standard is established or makes its way into the vast majority of, of uh, entities which want to hook up to that network, it, it takes on a certain characteristic, even if privately held, of a, uh, of a monopoly. That is to say, everybody wants to use that network. And one of the, uh, and that of course was the characteristics of the gold standard um, from about 1717, I would argue, uh, until 1914 in the First World War. Everybody wanted to be in this, this network because everybody wanted to make their payments um, in a currency that was a standard acceptable worldwide in all forms of trade and payments. So that um, the disadvantage of having only one state or 11 states or 12 states is that um, you still have a network in place, namely the Federal Reserve note as legal tender, which is ubiquitous and to which everybody is connected and which everybody is in the habit of making payments at the grocery store or by wire transfer for a securities purchase. And as a result, it's very hard to displace this network as everyone who's tried to displace Microsoft's operating network has found that it's very, very difficult once the standard is established. So that um, this is a profound effort at the state level, Utah in particular as the leader. Uh, what we need is a congressional action establishing the monetary standard under the unique powers given it by the Constitution of the United States under Article I and defining the dollar as a weight unit of gold. It doesn't even have to define it as legal tender. That is one dollar. One dollar is equal to one unit of gold. Um, that is not sufficient, but that would be a necessary element, as Bert was implying about the five-step program, that would be a necessary element in moving forward to reestablishing the gold standard as the world network for trade and exchange. Uh, one of the encouraging um, aspects of Lou's writing and the way he speaks is his uh, passion for advocating for families and, and uh, working people, people outside of the financial elite, people outside of the, the political class. Um, there aren't that many voices uh, are advocating for such uh, broad prosperity. And I, I, for one, appreciate all your work. And I just want to point out in the book that you've been, uh, you've been making this argument uh, cogently for 40 years and have now collected uh, much of that argument in the book and it's now available. Um, anyone watching on C-SPAN, you could also get the book. Um, 
I just I think we have time for one more question, but uh, before before we do that, I do want to I just want to thank Lou for for uh, for being so passionate about this subject for for many many years. <laughs> yes, the the book is Money, Gold, and History, and uh, I think we have time for one more question. Um, Roman Bueller, uh, I was a, a committee counsel for Congress for uh, 14 years, uh, and when I listen to what you, what you talk about, it sounds like you're suggesting that Congress impose some kind of monetary discipline. And my observation is that uh, congressional discipline is kind of an oxymoron. Um, and I wonder if you had thought at all uh, about the idea of taking the core of your, the discipline you propose and writing it into the United States Constitution. Uh, and about the fact that unlike laws, uh, states have the power if they use it properly to force Congress to propose a constitutional amendment. And so instead of relying on politicians in Washington to impose discipline on themselves, perhaps we might be able to empower states to impose some discipline from the outside on, uh, on Washington. I wonder if you thought about those ideas. So Roman, I, I have thought about them. And indeed, those issues have arisen ever since the crisis of the monetary standard uh, of the, of the post-war Bretton Woods system arose around 1960. Um, and ideas not unlike that have been uh, proposed, I would say not quite so succinctly. It was extremely well said. As between a legislative act um, and a constitutional amendment, um, as a practical matter, as dysfunctional as Congress is thought to be, I would choose the legislative act as the, um, the less imperfect of the mechanisms by which to inaugurate uh, the gold standard. Well, and if I may pick up on the very beginning, you say, uh, probably not with uh, uh, forethought, but that Congress imposes the gold standard on, um, on an unruly, um, dysfunctional financial world. Uh, the, the, the better way to say it, if I may, is that Congress is required by the Constitution to define the American monetary standard, not to define the French monetary standard, not, nor to define the world monetary standard, but Congress, under Article One, Sections 8, and you'll see a, um, a derivative um, um, point in Section 10, under our, in, in, in our Article One, Section 8, Congress is given the sole power, I, I, I do repeat it, to coin money and regulate the value thereof. There is nothing there is no power given to any agency like the Federal Reserve, no power given to banks like J.P. Morgan to uh, establish uh, only to have opinions about the American monetary standard. So it is, uh, it is Congress's duty 
to define the American monetary standard, not least because we have observed now 40 years in which Congress has failed to define the American monetary standard, which for the, almost the entire history of the American Republic uh, uh, until 1971 was defined as a certain weight of precious metal, primarily gold. Congress, it's, it's Congress's duty to define the American monetary standard. And it is, it, it is fair, I think, to say that Congress has been dysfunctional. However, Congress has been dysfunctional through many periods of, in United States history. If you just take the antebellum period um, after the inauguration of the Republic in 1789, um, there were many people who thought everybody in America should have a free and equal opportunity, and that certain uh, classes of people or, ra or races of people were denied that particular opportunity. And during that, if you read the debates in that period, you find that there were people, that there were great statesmen who um, despaired uh, that uh, the equality proposition of the Declaration of Independence would become the, the, uh, the American proposition uh, governing our way of life in America. Things happen. Statesmen arise. Congress gets itself together. Congress proposes amendments to the Constitution, such as uh, Ramon was uh, uh, suggesting. Constitutional amendments arise from the, the people directly, as well as uh, within the halls of Congress. So that we go for long periods um, um, with a dys dysfunctional Congress. The reason I mentioned that the chairman of the Joint Economic Committee of Congress, a, a distinguished a gentleman from Texas, um, Kevin Brady, uh, and his committee have have presented a bill calling for a centenary monetary commission to examine what should be the American monetary standard, an examination of history, an examination of the empirical evidence, especially the historical evidence, and what all those of different persuasions, Keynesians, monetarists, Austrians, classicists, I guess there are many, there's many more in that taxonomy of economists. Uh, but to bring forth these opinion and an attempt to gain a consensus uh, and th thereby to go to Congress and perhaps then it will do its duty and establish the American monetary standard and define it as it was in 1792 at the beginning of the American Republic as a certain weight of precious metal. Thank you very, very much and thank you, Addison. <laughs>